This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 20 years ago, on September 11th, shortly after 8.45 a.m., two planes hijacked by terrorists were flown into both towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, killing over 2,700 people. A little while later, a third plane, taken over by terrorists, crashed into the west wall of the Pentagon building in Washington, D.C. at 9.37 a.m. Here's CBS News' Bryant Gumbel describing the scene that morning. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. We're looking at a uh, live picture from Washington, and there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. It would appear that there has been another major explosion, this one in the nation's capital. You are looking at a scene of uh, apparent blast aftermath. There is smoke in the air over the Pentagon. We don't know whether this is the result of a bomb or whether it is yet another aircraft that has targeted a um, symbol of the United States power, but there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. David Lechek was among the 189 people killed at the Pentagon that day. He was a civilian employee for the Department of the Army, working as a budget analyst. He was one of nine people who died in the 9-11 attacks with Hawaii ties. He was survived by his two children and his wife, Lori, who grew up on Oahu and graduated from Hawaii Baptist Academy. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with her to remember her late husband and learn how she turned her grief into a way to help other people. Can you share with us what kind of guy David was? It's always so challenging to try to encapsulate somebody's essence in words, but I will say that time and time again after he died, so many people said he made you feel like he was your best friend and that he just, no matter if it was the the head of the department or the person who was taking the trash out, that didn't matter. He just treated everybody as if they were the most special person. I know often after somebody dies, people place them on a pedestal, but people would tease and say, but Dave already walked on water. I mean, he was just such a kind, gentle person and very patient. And he was just uh, uh, just a, a rare, a, a rare gem. From what I understand, he was pretty athletic too. Did he participate in a lot of different kinds of sports? Was, did he have a favorite? Yes, he loved sports. Growing up, he was the middle son of three boys, and then he had a sister who was younger too. But those three boys just were always playing in sports. So he he played in, you know, in varsity basketball, baseball, football. He was quarterback for his high school football team. And then he played football in college. And then, you know, as you leave school, you're athletic choices are more limited. So he played on um, softball teams and um, he'd play golf, he'd play racquetball, he'd go running, biking. I mean, he just was an all round athlete, but was always very humble about it. And he also coached our, our sons, all of the sports that our son ever played when he started at four years old. Dave was always coaching. It sounds like he was a very team oriented, a very family oriented guy. Yes. He was. He just loved our family. He was one of those involved dads. He'd come home from work and I used to tease and say he'd put his play clothes on and mm-hmm. then I'd have to call all three of the quote kids to dinner. So <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he very, you know, one of those dads who would bathe the kids and read them stories while he played. I'd prepare dinner. We just kind of had a rhythm and um, yeah, he just loved kids. In the last 20 years, have you done anything specific to keep his memory alive? Do you have a memorial on September 11th? Yeah, I think, first of all, when you lose somebody, something you really fear is that they will be forgotten over time. And everybody deals with grief differently. But I know that for me, I felt like, especially having the kids as well, I felt like I wanted to do everything I could to help keep his memory alive. So that wouldn't just be on anniversaries or on his birthday. It was just constant. So 
sometimes memorials are a way to do it. And I participated in our local county has a memorial to the 22 citizens of our county that perished that day. So I was on the committee to um, develop and design the memorial. And then it, all the way to simple things um, that you do at home to you know keep photos up and talk about them. And on his birthday, I always make meatloaf. And my hopes are that as the kids grow up and have their own families, they'll do the same. I also, I am a docent at the Pentagon Memorial. There's a memorial right outside the Pentagon on the side of the building that was impacted. And so I volunteer my time by helping those visitors remember. It's kind of, it's just sad to me that here we are approaching the 20th anniversary and there are so many kids out there who weren't even born. Um, I think at the beginning, we just couldn't imagine people not knowing about 9-11, but it's surprising what time does. And so I try to help do what I can to help people remember and not forget. You know, here, the memory of the attack on Pearl Harbor is something that is memorialized, something that I think uh, kids are, are aware of. And I think, I think 9-11 is something that should be just as important to remember. And I, I also read that in 2007, StoryCorps did a story on a grieving military widow and mentioned that you were working with her as a mentor. Is that something that you still do? How, how did you come to that? There's an organization that I devote a great deal of time to, and it's called TAPS. It stands for Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And TAPS is a, uh, a support organization for military families who have lost a loved one. I first became aware of TAPS back in 2001, right after the, uh, the attack occurred. And at that time, TAPS was a very small organization. As time went on, the program, the TAPS program started expanding and they developed a peer mentor program. So I wasn't quite ready. I had to wait a, a few more years until I felt that I could reach out to someone else and focus on them without it triggering me so much that it, that I wasn't going to be as helpful to them. But, uh, but eventually that time came. So I, I went through the training and I started then also just reading everything I could about, well, all along I was reading everything I could about grief, but I started reading about then turning my grief into a way to help other people mm -hmm. as a peer mentor. So I, the TAPS program will contact me and assign me somebody that they've paired me up with. And then I will work one-on-one -on -one with that that family member, it's, it's, they're all widows. They try to find somebody who has a similar circumstance to you. And you just basically hold their hand and let them know that they're not alone. And at the same time, you are kind of helping grieve with them because you're further along in your grief journey, you're able to give them hope that they won't feel the same intensity of pain that they're feeling at that moment that they won't feel that forever, that even if it's hard to believe, they can see somebody who is still living life and kind of piecing their world back together. And it's, it's been, um, I don't wanna say rewarding, but when you have something so bad happen to you, I just feel like I'm compelled to, if I can make sense of it and use it to help somebody else, then it makes that loss a little less in vain and that gives it a little more purpose. So that's what I, I find is, is kind of my new purpose in life is to just help others who are suffering. Has that opportunity also helped you as well? Does it, does it play a role in, in helping you to, to continue to heal? It does. It, it's, it's interesting how without that being the intention, it ends up helping you know, you of course start to see, you you go back in time and you start to see how just completely devastated you were and you see how far you've come. So when it's day to day, it's not as obvious, but then when you are taking a moment in time to see, gosh, you know, five years ago, that's, that's how I was and look how far I've come. 
when my grandmother passed away, I spoke at her funeral about how I saw parts of her personality in my mom and in my mom's siblings. Do you see David in your kids or other people in your life? Absolutely. It's really fascinating to see that happen. My daughter was seven. Jenny was seven. And Zach, my son, was nine when Dave died. So they were still young. They weren't, they didn't have their full adult features. So as time goes by, I will see more and more of their features being those that come from Dave. It sometimes there can be a moment where it just really catches me and takes my breath away. I distinctly remember when Jenny had braces and you can't really see what's going on with the teeth during the process of the braces, but she got in the car after they were taken off. And I said, well, let me see. And she smiled and wow, it was like, I was just hit by how much she had Dave smile. And I didn't realize it until that very moment. Then there are other times where my son will have a facial expression or a gesture with his hands. And it just gives me chills because I think he hadn't been watching Dave all these years, yet it was in him. And I would see that come out. And it's, it's very special and just such a poignant moment when that happens, because you just are reminded that their essence is still with you. That's incredible. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience about Dave or about the importance of remembering the people we lost on 9-11? There are so many lives that were lost on 9-11 and also in the past 20 years in the fight against terrorism. And each of those people that lost their lives, they had families, they had friends, they had colleagues, so many people that were impacted by their death. And I just, I just don't want us to forget. And I think about how amazing everybody was right after 9-11. There was just this kindness that people were showing to one another and this unity that we felt. And um, I guess I would just like for people to remember that and kind of remember this 20th year marking that's been 20 years since the attack on our country, that we would remember that we are united. And there's unfortunately so much divisiveness in the world today or in our country. And we have so much more that we have in common than we do. We have different. And, oh, if we could just harness that again and pause and try to um, be kind and appreciate one another, that would be my wish. That was Lori Lechuk, widow of the late David Lechuk. Uh, David Lechuk was one of nine people with Hawaii uh, ties who perished on September 11th, 2001. Uh, Lori lives in Virginia now. She says she'll be preparing flowers and taking them to the memorials around her community on Friday. And she does plan to attend the 9-11 observance ceremony hosted by the Secretary of the Defense at the Pentagon Memorial on Saturday. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're appealing to the classic TV buff. Do you remember Detective Kono Kalakaua, who appeared on the hit series Hawaii Five-0? He was part of the original 1968 cast. The actor who played the burly crime fighter was born Gilbert Kauhi on October 17, 1937, on the Big Island. He's better known by his professional name, uh, professional name Zulu, which was actually a high school nickname. After leaving school, he joined the U.S. Coast Guard. He was a talented singer, guitarist, and ukulele player. 
Uh, fans may recall that early in his career, he uh, formed Zulu and the Polynesians and entertained on cruise ships as well as in Japan. Film credits include Hawaiian Eye and Gidget Goes Hawaiian. Uh, Kawi was fired from the series in 1972 after a dispute with the show's publicist. So we want to know who replaced him in the series. Think you know? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. bookings on this other side of the holiday uh, are said to be softening. September and October traditionally tend to be slower times in the visitor industry. And with the COVID cases in the island soaring, it is cause for concern for our economic recovery. Here's what Rig Eggett of the Waikiki Improvement Association had to say. Yes, we're, we're concerned. You know, the, the COVID spike, obviously, with the Delta variant is, is causing a lot of concern for travelers. It's certainly creating a lot of concern in the community. And then, of course, all the publicity when you have, you know, national headlines of Governor of Hawaii saying don't come right now. I mean, I understand why the governor did it, but it definitely put us in a different position. So, yeah, we've got some challenging times ahead. I'm hopeful that we'll, be, we'll come out the other end and get, try to get this situation under control. In Local 5, the union that represents the majority of hotel workers in Waikiki sat down with us to talk about the uneasiness among its members. Uh, Eric Gill is the business manager for United Here. They basically have eliminated daily room cleaning. Many hotels have not reopened restaurants or reopened restaurants only partially. Banquet services, obviously, are. we understand that there are fewer functions, but banquet workers aren't back. So hundreds and hundreds of our members never returned to work in the first place over the summer, despite the fact that the occupancy was at pre-pandemic levels. Now that the hotels are laying off, of course, this is worse because you know, we need those jobs and the guests want those services, but the hotels are you know, continuing their policy of reducing services to guests under the pretext of the pandemic. The percentage return to work, you know, is uh, when you look at it on a paid hours basis, we never achieved even 70 percent of our 2019 levels throughout the summer, even though the occupancy was approaching 100 percent. And so many workers were left behind, and more will now be sent back to become behind. And Hawaii is losing many valuable jobs and, you know, a very important source of income for our state in the form of the wages that are spent here and the taxes that are generated by our members. This is really a crisis of our economy, not just for hotel workers. Are you hearing of just workers having their hours reduced, or are there just folks that are just losing their jobs, period? The food and beverage hours have been much reduced. So, you know, and in many cases, this is partly by government decree, of course. But there are long waits for our restaurants, and yet they won't open more restaurants or extend the restaurant hours. So guests are increasingly complaining. The daily room cleaning, of course, is the biggest driver. You know, that's about 40% of our housekeeping work hours. And what that means is many people left at home without being recalled to work. You know, conversely, there are some labor shortages in some places where the jobs are much, much harder now as people are being asked to do two or three people's jobs. It's a real blow to both the people 
at home and the people who are working. Both of them are being badly exploited by the employers in this crisis. What did you think when the governor asked the visitors to stay away? Well, this governor is a very cautious man, and the truth is the state hasn't been able to cope with the huge sudden influx of tourists. And so I haven't spoken to the governor about it. But I think that there's been a real difficulty in terms of testing people. They've struggled with that for months and have still not solved this pre-test problem. And now with the vaccine, you know, people vaccinated can spread it and get it. You know, so he's he's getting worried and he's not confident, I believe. You know, he'd have to speak for himself that the state can cope with this. So he's hoping to reduce the total amount of the problem. Uh, the problem is, of course, that hotel occupancy has dropped considerably, but the number of guests arriving hasn't dropped as significantly. And what that means is that more and more of our guests are going to vacation rentals where there are no good jobs generated by those. You know, So our visitor industry is getting cheapened down, and the job base is being threatened by that. What do you think about this latest uh, proposal by the administration to expand the resort district in Waikiki uh, to allow for more vacation rentals, you know, on the Malka side of Kuhio? Well, that, I guess the first question is, can you suppress illegal vacation rentals that aren't in resort areas? I think all of us would agree that to the extent that we have a large number of vacation rentals, they should be in resort areas that are set up for that and not in our neighborhoods. But the enforcement against uh, illegal vacation rentals in our neighborhoods has never been robust. And so it's a nice idea to expand that, I guess. But you first have to make sure that you can get them out of the neighborhoods where they shouldn't be. So you support beefing up the enforcement first before expanding the district? I haven't even seen the proposal to expand the district, and certainly we'll look at it. But absolutely, we've been, you know, for years we have been advocating uh, much more vigorous enforcement of the laws regarding temporary vacation rentals. And that's because that sector is a is a threat to our neighborhoods as well as our economy as guests choose those accommodations which do not provide good employment. So overall, the expansion of vacation rentals is a threat you know, to the economy as well as to our neighborhoods. And we've always been for vigorous enforcement of that. Local 5 led the way on this question over several years at the legislature. And we, among others, persuaded the governor to veto legislation that the legislature was passing, did pass, which would have expanded that number of vacation rentals. And so we're we're still in that fight. This is not something that's going to go away. The city and the localities and the state have to work together to make sure that the people operating lodgings in our community are doing so legally and doing so in the appropriate areas. Have you gotten any sense as to the vaccination rates of your members? Most of our members are very concerned about the health of their families and and are primarily concerned for that in terms of this uh, transmissibility. Everybody's worried about getting sick, but the way our, our people live in Hawaii, you know, most everybody has kids or aged parents or both and people vulnerable. And so our members are very concerned about bringing stuff home. Most of them have vaccinated. I, I think it varies by hotel. Mm-hmm. We don't have all the data. I'm not sure that the hotel has all the data yet either. Are any of the uh, hotels requiring vaccines for their workers? It looks like some of them will start doing that, yes. And, of course, we have many members at Kaiser, and Kaiser has issued a mandate as well. There are some hotels that are requiring vaccines or providing some substantial disincentives if you don't mm-hmm. get them. I know you've just been traveling, but have you had a chance to weigh in yet on uh, Mayor Blangiardi's plan for the uh, safe access in the restaurants? Well, I haven't personally. Uh, my people have been talking to the city, of course, and so have the hotels. We have restaurants in our hotels as well as employee cafeterias. And, you know, the, the question for us is not so much about whether guests and workers should be required to be vaccinated, but how do you enforce that? And um, in many cases, the companies have done very little to enforce any of their policies, including masking policies, social distancing policies. Those things have been routinely ignored, even though they published policies. You know, they promised enhanced cleaning and that they reduced the number of people cleaning. 
So, you know, basically there's been a lot of lip service to hotel safety and very little actual action. Obviously, our members are concerned that they may be put in a position where the guests get upset at them. And is the company going to provide any protection or any you know, concern for our members as this policy is enforced? We will certainly sort through and represent our members to the extent that there are people who are unable to comply with a vaccine mandate. There are good reasons for some people not to do that. Are, do you um, plan to, to like survey your members on the vaccine rate? Uh, we haven't surveyed. We have mm-hmm. had many meetings about it as mm-hmm. these things come up. We haven't attempted to survey, and we're not sure how valid such a survey would be. Hotels are starting to keep track. I think they have been keeping track. But obviously, our concerns are that people won't be able to make a living and won't be able to cover their families uh, for, for medical. Now, we, you know, last year we covered our families as long as our fund had the resources to do so. But we haven't been able to rebuild those reserves for Health and Welfare Fund. So we won't have the same amount of ability to assist people for their coverage. Have any of your members uh, like just kind of thrown their hands up and gotten other jobs outside the industry? Do you know? Well, certainly some have. Some people have retired as opposed to, you know, wait to be recalled. That obviously puts further stress on our, our, our fund. We provide retiree coverage and wow. our pension fund, of course. Obviously, each person that retires, uh, there needs to be somebody to replace them. But we're very concerned that, in fact, the employers aren't replacing them right. and using those vacancies and just holding the vacancy open. Is there We've anyone? Had many, many grievances about this and uh, in discussion with the hotel in many, many places. It's overall they're doing everything they can to avoid bringing people back to work. Can you say whether it's the hotels are reducing the hours of the workers? Is that generally what's happening? Well, certainly on food and beverage, they can do that. You know, uh-huh. some of our, you know, like our housekeepers basically get eight-hour shifts, so they mm-hmm. get called in or they don't. I see. When when you don't clean rooms every day, that means fewer housekeepers are called in in the first place. So even if guests then want their room cleaned and requested, you know, they can't get it because people haven't been called in. You know, the the work hour adjustments in terms of the amount of time it takes to clean a room after it's been not cleaned for for right. days it's or harder. a yeah. week is a far more, but they haven't been willing to adjust those either. That was Eric Gale, head of Local 5 Unite here, which represents hotel workers. It also represents Kaiser Hospital uh, as well. Uh, Its members rallied over the Labor Day weekend as it is currently negotiating a new working contract with Kaiser Permanente. Its current contract runs out at the end of September. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. Annual membership contributions and program sponsorships from local organizations are critical to fueling the day-to-day work of HPR. But there's an additional way to build a lasting future for public radio in Hawaii. Make a gift through your will or estate plan. By including HPR as a beneficiary, you ensure future generations can access the resource that has meant so much to you. For more information, go to hawaiipublicradio.org legacy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. Finding community in a homeless campsite. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check looks at efforts by one woman to find a better way forward. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is about a, what was a very large campsite on the west side. 
of Oahu. Still is. Yeah, still is. Pu'uhonua, Owainai is what it's what it's uh, called. And Civil Beat has been reporting on it for a number of years. In fact, the, re- the reporter, the editor, actually on today's story, Jessica Terrell, she actually uh, lived out there for a while. A couple of years ago, got to know the folks, including these, um, the if you will, the unelected mayor <laughs> of the Pu'uhonua, that's Twinkle Borge. And, uh, you know, about a year and a half ago, it looked like there was going to be a new development. We're talking about 150 people. They're living in tents and tarps, other structures built near the Waianae uh, Small Boat Harbor. And to some people, it's an eyesore. To others, it's a, you know, it's a model of maybe how we can help folks uh, find a place to live. But the important thing about the Pu'uhonua Owainai is it's temporary. And in today's story, Jessica has interviewed Twinkle and others out there. And there's a plan to uh, find a permanent place to establish uh, a new uh, a new home for these folks. In fact, Twinkle likes to use the word houseless, not homeless. These are people without without homes yes but really what they need is a house over their head and so what they've done is they've purchased some land for about 1.5 million dollars also out in Waianae on Waianae Valley Road and the hope is to set up uh, maybe some tiny homes some other structures uh, grow some vegetables some fruits to try and become self-sustaining so that's where we are now yeah, if I recall, things came to a head because I think DLNR owned some of that land, and yeah, I think the, the there boat was, harbor, for example. Yeah, yeah, but there was also like a uh, there was a shrimp, uh, opai. Right, there was think, there right? was a, a species out there that's rare, and then there was concern that it would be impacted, and so uh, the idea is to to set up this this new encampment, and it's all being done through a nonprofit that that Twinkle Borge and others have set up. James Koshiba is involved. It's called the Dynamic Community Solutions. It's an, it is intended, uh, it was intended not only to purchase the land out there, about 20 acres, but also to try and find ways to, to build infrastructure. And this is where they are now. The plan had been to, to do this, oh, back in March 2020, but we all know what happened in March 2020. That's when COVID uh, first really hit our shores. And it's now been 18 months later, and this is uh, the group has spent the time clearing the land, uh, trying to get rid of old cars and tires that have been abandoned there. Uh, they have a lot of ambitious goals, not only to grow avocado and papaya and banana, uh, but to somehow uh, pull together their resources because they're going to have to cover water expenses, electricity. They're going to have to pay property taxes. So that requires uh, an income stream, some sort of revenue stream. And we'll see how that's going to work out. But um, I think the key word here that what you're hearing from a lot of people is that word community. In fact, Jessica interviewed Scott Morishige, the uh, the homeless coordinator for the administration, the governor's administration. And he says that in particular has really kept this group together, community, that sense of belonging. And he thinks that could possibly serve as a model for other establishments, although I should say Scott cautioned against this, you know, really being the way to deal with homelessness and houselessness going forward. But the fact that they all look out for each other, uh, that they inter- they connect with the community and have lots of conversations with area leaders, I think is central to this story. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I uh, have a lot of respect because uh, uh, Twinkle really set down the rules in that community and she really did. made sure she was the enforcer, made sure that people abided by the rules that the community came up with. Absolutely. In fact, it, it looks like about 75% of the folks at Pu'uhonua Owainai are vaccinated. That's a higher figure right now than the state average. And and so that is encouraging as well. We should let you know that, by the way, the the, um, the folks at Pu'uhonua were able to get this land and to start work on it through an emergency order from the governor on homelessness. That helped them bypass some zoning and permitting regulations. Uh, they were able to qualify for that emergency order, which has since expired, but that's helping them uh, get a leg up, if you will, on getting this project going. The real difficulty, however, is getting the neighbors around the new area to accept uh, a group coming in, people without homes, trying to find a permanent place to live. And of course, that's NIMBY, right? Not in my right. backyard. So that's the challenge right now is carry that community message and try and work with uh, the potential new neighbors on this uh, project in Waianae Valley Road. Yeah, a challenge, but uh, it's still interesting. And you got to give them credit for coming up with this idea 
and uh, you know we'll, we'll see where it goes. We will keep you posted, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thank you. That was Chad Blair, Politics and Opinion Editor with today's Reality Check. Read the story online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to share an update on how scientists will be studying space with a new orbiting infrared observatory. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are joined by astronomer Christopher Phillips and grateful to have him guide us through this week's report. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the eastern sky after sunset. Both planets will be visible throughout the night. The moon this week is passing through its new moon phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And we've got an update on the exciting launch of a new space telescope that you've been informing us about for some time. Yes, finally, the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope is just a few months away, with a planned launch date of late November. This successor to the Hubble Space Telescope is set to usher in a new era of space-based astronomy, and the spacecraft will bring a brand new suite of instruments to bear on the universe. And astronomers studying alien worlds known as exoplanets are getting very excited by the possibility of studying a new type of potential water world known as a Hycean world. Hycean world. Explain that one and uh, a little bit of the origins on the term. Well, Hycean is basically a mix of the words hydrogen and ocean, and it refers to the watery nature of these exotic worlds. And these worlds somewhat similar to Earth? There are some similarities, yes, in terms of the surface oceans and potentially habitable atmosphere. But the Hycean worlds are thought to be larger than our own Earth, up to 10 times larger. And then that'll have an impact on gravity, huh? Yeah. Greater mass means greater force of gravity. These are probably not very pleasant worlds to live on as a human being, but it raises interesting questions for how organisms on these new worlds, if there are any, have adapted to a strong gravitational pull. And when it comes to how James Webb will be making these observations, will they be able to see them? Describe that part of it. Well, they won't be able to see them directly. At least, we won't be seeing beautiful images of planets from space. But what we will be able to do is study the light from these worlds using a method called spectroscopy. This will determine what the atmosphere and surface are made of and potentially show us any signs of biology on these worlds. And astronomers are confident they'll be able to determine this very quickly. It's an exciting time to be an exoplanet astronomer. And we'll have some good stargazer reports in the future, too, I'm imagining. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Earlier in the show, we asked you about a classic Hawaii Five-O character, Detective Konokalakawa, from the original 1968 cast. Played by a Hilo native, Gilbert Kawi, fans probably know him better by his professional name, Zulu. He was on the show for four seasons. Hawaii Five-O had just the right mix of murder and mayhem set in urban Honolulu and beautiful tropical backgrounds uh, to have uh, audiences tuning in weekly. Did you know that some of the rank-and-file police portrayed on scene were actually off-duty Honolulu officers? Uh, TV historians note that the crime series is the longest-running American TV police drama and the last fictional primetime show that debuted in the 1960s to leave the air. The series uh, wrapped in 1980, but Andy Johnson from Kauai knew that eight years earlier, Zulu's detective Kono Kalakawa was replaced by Al Harrington, who replaced, who played Detective Ben Kokua. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, honolulumuseum.org. Foodland's Give Aloha program makes it easy to donate to your favorite charity and it matches your gift. Shop at any Foodland, Sack and Save, and Foodland Farm stores this month and designate Hawaii Public Radio at checkout. Your donation helps to sustain our statewide public service and along with your groceries, you'll take home our big mahalo. September is celebrated as Hawaiian History Month, and just last week marked uh, Queen Liliuokalani's 183rd birthday. To honor Hawaii's last reigning monarch, the State Archives launched the digital collection of the Queen's personal papers. We talked to State Archivist Adam Jensen about the unprecedented access now available to all. We're very honored to be the, the, the repository that Her Majesty chose to deposit her personal manuscript collection with before her death. And so we've been sitting on this collection for, well, obviously over 100 years. And it is really an unprecedented view on the life and time of the queen, because it includes not only her papers, but also her husband's family business papers. So the collection itself goes back to the 1830s, 1840s, and documents the Dominus family businesses and all they did, and then carries all the way through, really to the end of her life. And so looking at this massive collection is an opportunity to understand who she was as a person at a level that individuals have never had the opportunity before. There's no filter. There, there's absolutely no filter. Nobody's interpreting it for you through their worldview, saying, I think this is the important stuff, or this is how I interpreted her words. This is an opportunity for the public to go in and at an intimate level, read her personal diary entries things that she wrote for herself and wanted to deposit in the public archives so the public could read it and understand everything she had to go through and what was going through her mind. It's amazing. You know, in this day and age, you know, that's the type of leader we need to draw inspiration from. From her entire life, she did nothing but try and better the life of her people. And it, it is just a beautiful, amazing story of perseverance. And the last time we talked, you had shared the story that you had come across a letter that she wrote to, I believe it was the son of her financial person. And it was a letter that she wrote. She had just gotten word that Princess Kaiulani had passed. That is also one of the collections we have. It's not in her personal manuscript collection, but it's actually in J.O. Carter's collection, which we are also working on getting digitized as well. And, and again, it's one of those unbelievably intimate windows into her, her thought because her, she was pen pals with J.L. Carter's son. J.L. Carter was her financier and representative here in the islands when she was in D.C. Uh, you know, fighting for restoration. But for some reason, she'd struck up a pen pal relationship with his son. And, well, how's it going? You know, are you enjoying going to school? You know, just really friendly, chatty stuff. And she's writing to him and halfway through the letter, she stops and says, oh, she, she's writing, oh, I, I, you know, I heard Kaiolani is getting better and, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing her. And then halfway through the letter, she stops and says, I've just received a telegram letting me know that she passed away. So we know exactly where she was and when she received and how she received the news. I mean, I have chicken skin just talking about it. It is, it is just such, such a powerful story. And then with this unbelievable heartbreak, she still ends it with much aloha because that's who she was as a person. And it's, it's just a beautiful, again, very intimate view into who she was. But that's the kind of thing. Those are the kinds of documents that you have at the State Archives. And again, because we've put everything out there and, and we have a very comprehensive digitization process where it's not just digitize it and get it out there. 
It's replicate the experience as if a researcher came into the facility and physically looked at the files. So we do things like digitize the folder. So how is it intellectually organized? And then we digitize front and back of every single page because I don't want my team to determine whether that pencil mark on the back is inadvertent or did it have significance. And for the bound volumes, we digitize the front cover, the interleaves, and then if they only use the first 10 pages out of 100, we digitize the other 90 anyway because we want the researchers, the public to know they have access to absolutely everything we have. That there's no question of, well, you know, maybe there's something in the back that you know, really had some, some hidden significance. It's all out there. We want everybody to use it because we're the public archives. We're their archives. And if the public doesn't have access to it, is it really a public record? So our huge push during this whole unfortunate pandemic has been to digitize some of the most important things we have so that the public everywhere, anytime can have access to these resources. And that's the beauty of this because, you know, for the folks on the neighbor islands that are looking things up that have an interest, they have to come to Honolulu and, and knock on your door and sign in and, and now they can just do it from home. And that's that's absolutely it, because we've 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 had to reduce the number of researchers that we allow in. We're one of the only memory institutions that stayed open through the whole pandemic. But to make allowances for the difficulties, we've had to spread the tables out. We've had to cut the numbers down. So we occasionally have lines out, literally lines out the door. So people have to queue up and we guarantee them two hours. But if there's people out the door, we've got to get them in, too, because they have rights to access. So if you're coming from a neighbor island, that can be difficult and it's not fair. It shouldn't be any easier for, for people on Oahu than Maui or the big island. So how do we create equity and how do we get greater appreciation for the richness of what is contained in the public archives? And who do we have to thank for allowing this project to go forward? Well, and that with immense appreciation and gratitude, the Lilio Okalani Trust funded the entire digitization of all 24,000 pages of her manuscript collection, as well as the collections of um, the, the trust records that we have, which are include her wills and all the properties that she leased out. So we know what was her desires for the trust. And then also they, they paid to have the Curtis Ialkea collection digitized and just an amazing individual. All of those will be coming out through the rest of the year so that those can also go online. And then they've also, as I mentioned earlier, the J.L. Carter collection. That's going to be the next big series that we digitize to get online. Again, unprecedented view of who Her Majesty was, not only as a leader, but as a person as well. Now, as part of the Queen's collection, do you have her, uh, her checkbook, her, her bank statements? We do. There's a lot of financial records in there. The majority of it is in the J.L. Carter collection because that he was her financier. He was a money man. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's fascinating to look at what she paid and how much it cost and how much money she spent sending uh, young women to school to get educated, to lift them up, to give them greater standing uh, in society. So we basically have then these documents, just everyday stuff, but really meaningful when you when you think, you know, more than 100 years has passed. And, and that to me is is the beautiful thing about the collection is it is everyday stuff. It's her writing to Katyolani on as a as a sibling level relationship and discussion. It's her writing to heads of state. It's her writing to DC to say I need to be restored. So it's it's a gamut of everything. It's her political it's, it's her as a sovereign. It's her as a person. And for us, because it is such an incredibly rich collection, we've done something we've never done before, and that's itemize and describe these records at an individual level. It's not, here's a box of her correspondence from 1888. It's, here's a letter from her to this person on this date, and here's the subject. So you can do keyword searching across because 24,000 pages is a lot of, of information. And so we, we want to allow people to hone in. And we've also done things like which language is it written in? Maybe I only want to see things in the little Hawaii. 
And, and along those lines, not only did we create these item level descriptions, but we translated them into Alelo Hawaii. And our digital archives is now functionally bilingual. So we can finally, for the first time in our history, present all of this in the language of preference of the researcher. That is truly amazing. And, and we're, we're just so excited about what that opens up for us as a public archives, being able to more fully support and encourage research in the two official languages of the state. What a banquet you've just laid at our feet. We couldn't think of any better way to honor Her Majesty's birthday than to make all of this available to the public, which ultimately was her wish. Is there anything in particular that users need to know? Just be prepared. There is so much to have to work through that it's not like a library. You just can't go and pull a book off the shelf. So you're going to have to dig in, get comfortable, but it's yours. Download it. Do what you want. Print it out. Uh, along those lines, we also digitized all of our 120 photographs of Her Majesty in very high resolution. Make them poster size. Put them in classrooms. Bring them to work. This is public material, public domain. We don't charge for you to use it. So please make use of this, this unprecedented resource. Yeah, and share it. Please. All right. Thank you so much, Adam Jensen. It's an honor. That was Adam Jensen, state archivist, talking about his staff has just digitized 24,000 documents as part of the Queen Liliuokalani collection. It launched the online access for all to use last week on the Queen's birthday. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we hear from state epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Kemble as we race for more COVID hospitalizations. You know, do you remember the moment you heard about the World Trade Center attack? Share your reflections by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.